OSL is the leading distributor of radiotherapy patient positioning equipment and physics QA products for the UK and Ireland, supplying both the NHS and private sectors. We are currently running winter lunchtime on-site sessions discussing the superficial and ortho-voltage treatment portfolio that we distribute for WOMED, owned by Baybig. This comprehensive KV unit portfolio ranges from energies of 50 to 300 KV with excellent patient and staff safety features and we offer an incredible service and support package for your engineering team to ensure a smooth and efficient service for your patients. Please do get in touch if you require further information. And finally, as always, do not hesitate to discuss your product and service requirements with our friendly and knowledgeable account specialists as and when required. We are all from a radiotherapy background and we are more than happy to chat about the clinical benefits and the workflow of all of our products. Please go to our website at www.osl.uk.com or if you would like to speak to us, please call 01743 462 694. Hi, my name is Laura and I work at Convensys as a partnerships manager. Join us at the NHS Oncology Conference on the 6th of June 2023 in Manchester. We will open the debate on how the NHS is planning to lean on new models of delivery and innovation to help manage the current treatment backlogs and improve outcomes on a national scale. All tickets are free for the NHS to attend. To register for your free ticket, visit convensis.co.uk. Hello everyone and welcome to Rad Chat, the multi-award winning first therapeutic radiographer-led oncology podcast. So welcome to podcast number 81. My name's Jane McNamara and I'm joined by fellow host Norman Joelka Anderson. Hi everyone. So a huge thank you to our last guest, Maria Daly, who discussed her PhD around abdominal compression. If you haven't had a chance yet, please do go and take a listen. So we're really pleased to introduce our guest for this evening, Michael Merchant. He'll be discussing proton beam therapy and research. Hi, Michael. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for inviting me tonight. Absolute pleasure. We did have a quick discussion about the fact that your wife well and truly landed you in it. No, it's not the uh, the first time she's got me in trouble, but... Um... It's nice of her to name drop me in her episode. (laughs) So, Michael, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where do you work? What's your career pathway been like to date? So um, I'm a senior lecturer in proton therapy physics at the University of Manchester, although uh, I'm based in the Christie Hospital in the Christie Proton Therapy Centre. And that's mainly because it puts me in very close proximity to the, uh, the Christie Proton Therapy Research Room which is where I do all of my research. So that is, um, is part of the clinical proton therapy center where there's a, uh, a cyclotron for proton therapy and then three clinical uh, treatment rooms. And the research room is the fourth treatment room, um, which isn't used for patient treatment, but purely for research. And that was funded by the Christie charity. So, uh, so that's what, um, well, that's where uh, I do my research and the equipment I use. Um, but uh, I suppose I've got a bit of a long story into how I came to the University of Manchester and started doing proton therapy research. Um, my undergraduate degree was in electronic engineering, and I did a master's uh, in electronic engineering as well at the University of Surrey. And my final year project in, uh, in that master's degree was something called a multidisciplinary design project where I had to work with a team of six other engineers and the project just happened to be to design a proton therapy center. Um, so uh, that, that was quite interesting and that was the first I'd really even known about kind of healthcare and engineering at that point. Um, but the, the project went very well and my particular role in it there was engineers from each different discipline, but my particular role was to design uh, the beam transport, or so the beam focusing of the proton beam. Um, so I started learning about beam optics, and because of the success of that, uh, that chapter in that report, uh, I went on to do a, a PhD in ion beam optics, or ion beam focusing, but still not really for cancer applications. But the final part of that PhD, I ended up designing a, a beam line to focus proton or a beam of protons down to about one micron for targeting single cells, uh, mainly so radiobiologists could study how cells died from radiation or, 
of very focused radiation. And even if they could target particular parts of the cell nucleus and see how that affected the radiation response. And so from that PhD and working with radiobiologists, I went on to become quite interested in uh, these very different at the time types of science to, to what I was used to as an electronic engineer. Uh, and really became fascinated in that aspect of radiobiology and how I could become involved. And so it really started off with working with other radiobiologists. And I would look down the microscope and say, is that a cell? And they'd say, no, Mike, that, that's a piece of grit. That's a cell over there. Um, but then I would do the calculations for how the beam was focused and how much dose would put in. And it really became a, a useful collaboration, trying to understand how I could apply my engineering skills to help them do the biology. And that's really how um, that project was led by Professor Karen Kirkby. And she moved up to, uh, to Manchester to, uh, to lead pro proton therapy research as the new proton therapy center was being built. And so I was invited as part of her team to design the research beamline in Manchester, obviously with my, my skills from my PhD in beamline design. So that, that's where I started, really, and that's how I ended up in Manchester. So your project that you did in the Masters, they didn't use that blueprint to make the Christie? No, it was, uh, it was a very interesting project, but it was significantly more basic, really. Um, we were looking at kind of proton therapy for a number of different things. And, uh, you know, I think with, um, with six Masters students over six months or so, you can only take it so far. But... Um, you know, for, for on, on to my PhD, and uh, I think some of those things will have ultimately ended up in the research beamline design at the Christie. So yeah, so you fired quite a few physics-y things at us. Do you want to talk us a bit through maybe what proton beam therapy is and all the other fancy things that you've said? Yeah, okay. Um, so I think fundamentally, the best thing about proton therapy is that protons stop. Um, so, because they are, are particles that have a, um, a, a physical mechanism of stopping in matter, they uh, obviously they are accelerated to quite a high energy by a particle accelerator. Normally, uh, a cyclotron, there's, there's various different types of particle accelerators, but normally a cyclotron for proton therapy. And that accelerates protons to, uh, in the Christie, about 250 million electron volts. So about two thirds of the speed of light. And at that energy, they have about a 30 centimeter range uh, into a patient or into, uh, into water. And we can use kind of water equivalents for the, uh, for the composition of a patient for how far those protons would go. And if we change or reduce that energy, those protons go less far. So they would start with, um, at the surface of the patient, they would be going very, very fast. And as they go deeper into the patient, they have interactions of the, uh, the, the matter of the patient and they begin to slow down. And as they slow down, they begin to slow down faster. And as they're, they've slowed down a little bit more and a little bit more, with each step, they slow down more than the last. So we get this very characteristic shape with protons known as the Bragg peak, which means that really just as they're running out of energy, they deposit most of the energy of that proton beam. And that allows us to fortuitously tune the energy that the protons are losing most of their energy as radiation dose to the depth of the tumor. So um, what that means is that protons have this overall advantage in that there's no dose beyond the tumor. So the overall dose the patient receives is potentially less than other radiotherapy types, such as x-rays, where uh, because they have a different process of, uh, of absorption, uh, x-rays would go all the way through the patient. And so they'd have some dose before the tumor in normal healthy tissue, some dose in the tumor, and some after. For protons, it's only that entrance dose and then tuning the, the maximum dose to be in the tumor. So, Mike, does the radiobiology differ between photons and protons? Yes, absolutely. So that's, uh, that's what most of my research is about. Um, so we have something called relative biological effect. Um, I, I'll speak to it as RBE. Um, and we talk a lot about proton RBE. Um, so 
that's really a comparison between how effective protons are at killing cells compared to x-rays. And clinically, almost everywhere in the world, a number of 1.1 is used. And this means that protons are 1.1 um, times more or 110% more effective at killing cells than x-rays or photon-based radiotherapy. And so that is a conversion factor that allows us to translate the knowledge that has been gained over, I suppose, 100 years of uh, radiation treatments of x-rays um, to how they could be applied to uh, patients receiving protons. But part of the controversy, I, I suppose, is that value of 1.1 is very much a, a safe and cautious value that um, has been chosen very carefully to avoid underdosing the tumour. But it's, it's known to be wrong under a number of circumstances. Uh, but the, the research question is what is the right value? So, um, so proton RBE is thought to change with depth into the patient or as those protons slow down. And we don't really have a good estimate of what it is, although most, most of the research points to a value, say, between about 1.3 and 1.7, compared to the standard of 1.1 that's used in clinical treatments, irrespective of all other, um, all other considerations. So um, the research question is, if we could understand exactly how that proton um, comparison to x-rays changed with depth or with, uh, or with dose, could we then tune it to give better, pay, uh, better treatments that really optimize that perhaps 1.7 value to be in the tumor and a more of a 1.1 value to be in, in normal tissue to reduce the side effects of proton therapy? Does the factor change between kind of age as well, so pediatrics and adults? I think it's fair to say that almost any parameter that you can think of uh, about a patient or a cell line in a lab does change RBE. And this is part of the problem. And people have been studying the relative biological effect of protons since the 1960s, really. And there is a huge data set uh, from experiments uh, in many, many different cell lines. Um, but... Um, but there's a lot of variability in that data set. And most of it's come from experiments in plastic, uh, with cells grown in plastic uh, in vitro, or from patient-derived cell lines. And there's so much variability. It could be from lab to lab, or cell line to cell line, or perhaps the age of those patient-derived cells, um, or uh, the amount of oxygen in the cells. We know hypoxia is very important. Um, if it's a tumor cell, uh, which particular tumor cell line or um, how those cells have been cultured, what particular measurement was used to uh, measure the radiation sensitivity of those cells, almost everything affects that measurement. And that's why we have so much uncertainty. And really, it's something that's very difficult to validate um, outside of kind of fundamental experiments on cells. Uh, medical imaging is the, the best way we have, but um, that really, it measures tissue effects, how tissue changes to radiation, effects like, say, necrosis or fibrosis or inflammation, things that we can see with medical imaging techniques, but it doesn't measure sort of cellular level survival on an individual basis. And those changes can be quite long term and would really need a a very large amount of data from a large number of patients to understand how those side effects or in, in tissue changed both over a very long time scale from treatment, but then as you said, in patients of different ages, um, of different sexes, uh, all the underlying conditions that they may have, and just individual radio sensitivity. So there's so many confounding factors, it's quite a challenging research topic. So, Mike, is that why, at the moment, proton beam therapy is only advocated for certain patients? Um, I think proton therapy is quite a new technology compared to x-rays, and it has its particular advantages. 
But I think the, the real reason why it's only advocated so far for certain cases is um, partially that uh, integral dose, the, the lower overall dose, um, from sparing that dose beyond the tumour, will have a particular advantage in paediatric cases um, because in any of that extra dose that goes into normal healthy tissue has a, a risk of secondary cancer. Um, and if that has an effect in sort of 20 to 30 years time, that could obviously have a, a profound effect for children who are, are treated with proton therapy. Um, but I think really the, the reason for limiting the cases at the moment is it's competing with other very, very advanced or technologically advanced radiotherapy techniques such as VMAT, where the technology has been developed over such a long period of time the, the fundamental physics might not be as good, but the delivery of that radiation can produce treatment plans that are, are very, very good and um, in, in depending on the, the particular case can be better than protons. So I, I think it's, it's a matter of choosing the right tool for the job. How does the commissioning process work then? Because obviously if you, um, if you go abroad to America, you can have proton therapy wherever you want really. Um, and obviously here with the NHS, as Joe was saying, not everything is commissioned, but apart from trying to compete with conventional radiotherapy, how would proton therapy move forward to commission more sites? Well, um, I mean, I, I suppose I should start to answer this question by saying that uh, I'll stay with my remit of a, uh, of a researcher. Uh, I'm not clinical, so I, I make no decisions on clinical treatments. But um, in the NHS, obviously, there is that very clear indication list of which patients will receive treatment. Um, and that's uh, obviously based on the evidence assessment. Um, in the US, obviously, they have their... Um, healthcare treatment based on uh, insurance and um, uh, individual um, treatment providers. Uh, and so I think that kind of healthcare insurance-based model leads to significant differences in those choices. Of, of particular interest for research, there's the, uh, the Dutch-based model for proton therapy that evaluates cases side by side with, uh, with photon therapy and applies normal tissue complication uh, probability based models to try and understand which treatment might have a more favorable outcome for each case. And um, I'm, I'm not sure that's the right approach at the moment because I think these normal tissue complication uh, probability based models do need an awful lot of more work to make them more reliably predictive. But that is a very, very interesting field of research. So Mike, can you tell us a little bit more about the research you're currently involved in and what it is that you do on a day-to-day -day basis? You know, I can imagine it's very different to maybe another uh, engineer working within radiotherapy or proton beam because of that research element. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'll start, I think, by saying, in my opinion, there's really there's two major research topics in proton therapy. The first is range uncertainty. So that's where do the protons stop? So uh, I've mentioned that the, the sort of the best thing about protons is that they do stop. But unfortunately, we don't always know exactly where. And this is due to, um, we use uh, X-ray CT-based imaging for imaging the patient to create the treatment plans. And there's that um, discrepancy in translating uh, CT-based, electron density-based measurements into a proton stopping power. Um, so that leads to uh, an uncertainty in when the treatment is planned, exactly where those protons will finish up. And if that problem could be solved, then really the, the range of the, the tumor or the treatment plans for proton therapy, the margins could be much, much smaller and the dose could be much more exactly conformed to the tumor. So that's, that's one problem. The other one is biological uncertainty. And that's this problem of RBE and perhaps higher RBE at the end of range. And when you put these two problems together, range uncertainty and biological uncertainty, then that gives us a, a real opportunity for optimizing proton therapy to, 
to look on the bright side of it. If we could improve on both of those two, two levels of uncertainty, then we could really create treatments that are, are significantly better. Um, so there's, there's a couple of projects that I'd like to mention that I'm involved in. First is the uh, Optima project that's led by the University of Lincoln. And this is making a proton um, um, uh, range, uh, range tracking device. Uh, so instead of using x-rays to image patients, it'd be using the proton beam itself at a very high energy to uh, transmit all the way through the patient at very low dose collect the exact range of those protons and build up a, a basically a proton-based CT, but then having a direct measure of proton stopping power. So that's something that we're going to develop and test in the proton therapy research room at the University of Manchester. And that, um, hopefully the, uh, the, the translation to clinic of that would be a, a medical device then, so that uh, future treatments would be based on proton CT for proton therapy, rather than photon-based CT. So that, that's one of my projects, but um, I think the, the proton therapy research group at the University of Manchester is perhaps quite different to other uh, research groups in that proton therapy itself is, is quite a wide remit and we're involved in a, a lot of different topics. So um, I lead the um, in silico um, simulation group uh, within proton therapy which really looks at using computational modeling to try and reduce this uh, relative biological um, effectiveness uncertainty of proton therapy. So th there's a couple of particular themes in that that I'm particularly interested in. The approach that we use is to try and separate the physics from the biology that leads into this measurement of biological effect. So, um, we do a lot of research on what we call nanodosimetry. Uh, so this is trying to understand what dose looks like on the scale of DNA. So how the dose deposition of protons um, changes the structure of DNA damage. We know that radiation causes um, DNA damage in the form of single strand breaks and double strand breaks. And that uh, for x-rays, the, the quality of those double strand breaks, which are the, the most toxic type of damages, the, the, the damage likely to uh, lead to cell death. Um, this is where both strands of the DNA are broken and the DNA can entirely separate and then needs to be repaired. Single strand breaks are just where one strand of that DNA is broken and cells are incredibly efficient at, breaking, uh, at repairing single strand breaks. They're also very, very good at repairing double strand breaks, but um, double strand breaks are, are much, much, much harder to repair. So we might expect for, for one gray of radiation to get about um, 1,000 single strand breaks in a cell and about 40 double strand breaks. Um, although this is a, a sort of a rule of thumb that has existed in radiobiology textbooks through the ages. And I, I really hate this uh, rule of thumb because I, I don't think it applies particularly well for proton therapy. Um, because we know that the energy deposition of protons, when we look at it on this nanoscale, it changes as the protons slow down. So their ionization density increases as the protons slow down. It slows down because they're, they're ionizing the cells and the DNA uh, at an increasing rate as they lose energy. And each one of these ionizations can cause a strand break. And if these ionizations are clustered together, they're more likely to cause a double strand break. And when they're very clustered, they can cause complex double strand breaks, which are just like really messy double strand breaks where the DNA is double strand breaks on op opposite strands and has separated and it's got lots of other strand breaks nearby and this slows down the DNA repair process. So um, so we can model this uh, in a computer using a, a code called Giant 4 which was developed by CERN for modeling the Large Hadron Collider. So uh, in that we've made a, a model of DNA and we fire um, in the simulation protons of various different energies 
into a model of DNA and we look at how those um, or what the probability of creating different types or, or different structures of DNA damages. So that's the first part of our simulation, the physics part. And that includes a little bit of radiation chemistry as well, because those uh, ionizations, they form water radicals. That um, goes on to cause indirect damage to DNA, where those radioactive um, oxygen species, water radicals, then diffuse. And wherever they meet DNA, they're incredibly reactive, and they can also cause a strand break. So we've both got the proton or the X-ray directly hitting the DNA or that diffusion of water radicals. Um, and we can measure this uh, to validate those simulations by taking raw DNA in the form of, of what we call plasmids. So this is DNA that's been extracted from cells and amplified, but is completely inert. It has no repair capacity. And we just irradiate that in our proton therapy research room with protons of different energies. And we can study the structure and the quantity of those double strand breaks we get. So that's one way that we can look at the physics of how the biological effect at a DNA level might change with protons at different energies. And those energies are relevant because they, they correspond to different depths of in the patient as the protons are slowing down. We then, uh, we've built a, a simulation that looks at how DNA repair happens. Um, so it looks at how those various different repair proteins in the cells interact to try and repair those breaks. Um, and we simulate the interactions of each of those proteins, how available they are, how, what the, the sort of the timing of them attaching is, and how likely that is to result in a correct repair of the DNA no repair at all, or what we call misrepair, where if there's lots of, uh, lots of DNA within the cell that's been damaged in, the, in uh, a local vicinity, uh, an area that's all quite close to each other, they have this probability of finding a kind of incorrect broken end, uh, the wrong partner to repair with. And this is what leads to chromosome aberrations. So, this can either be bits of DNA just being kind of forgotten by the cell, left out when that repair happens, we call those deletions. Or it could be complete uh, exchanges where a piece of DNA from, from one chromosome finds a piece of DNA from another chromosome and rejoins to that. And these events are normally very, very toxic for the cell, almost instantaneous cell death. Um, and the kind of the whole spectrum from small deletions to these very toxic rearrangements can happen. And so we try and predict the likelihood of those events happening and how likely they are to go on to um, cause either cancer cell death or normal tissue toxicity in healthy cells. And we can then uh, translate those simulations into patient treatment plans. So we work with, um, with uh, clinical colleagues at the, uh, the Christie, medical physicists who've developed the, uh, the treatment plans for patients. And on top of that, we apply our mathematical models of both the DNA damage on the nanoscale and then the DNA repair in our simulations. And we call this biologically augmented treatment planning. So instead of applying a, a kind of a, a set value of 1.1 for this uh, proton relative biological effectiveness. It allows us to give this variable um, ad adaptive um, value of proton RBE that changes with depth into the patient, with how quickly the, uh, the protons are stopping. It could be higher in bone or in different tissue types. We can apply it to different cell types depending on their radiosensitivity. And we can overlay the, the clinical treatment plan with what we think this new biologically augmented treatment plan would look like. There are several caveats though. One is, uh, is validation. As I've mentioned, the, the data set that exists from measurements all over the world for proton RBE is uh, very mixed. Um, it has a, a very large spread of data and we don't know where really this comes from. Um, part of it could be uh, experimental technique differences from different labs. It could be differences in different cell lines, differences in um, 
uh, treatment or age of the patient uh, from those cell lines that are derived, really anything you could think of could change those effects. And that's why we've tried to take quite a, a mechanistic approach in the modeling to try and narrow down what are the causes of that data set. Um, so that's the, the first part of the, the computer simulation in my research. Now, I think what's particularly nice about working at the Christie and having the, uh, the Christie Proton Therapy Research Room on site is that um, the Proton Therapy Research Team, uh, we, we can get, uh, we call it beam time, but availability to a proton therapy beam line or, or beam purely for research um, at clinically relevant energies. So the same energies that would be used to treat patients. And this is actually a unique facility in the UK. Um, and for my particular interest, we can use this to irradiate cells and try and validate the mathematical models and use this kind of uh, iteration of making a prediction of the mathematical model for what the RBE would be under certain conditions and then irradiating cells, looking at their DNA repair or their cell survival for different cell lines and saying, was the prediction correct? What have we missed? Can we improve the, uh, improve the mathematical model and the prediction? And then what would, would that look like if we fed that through to treatment planning? So um, we, we do get beam time. For us, it starts at 11 p.m. at night uh, after the uh, clinical service has finished treating patients and physics have come in and done all their QA for the next day. And then uh, the Varian, the, uh, the um, uh, industry, the, the provider of the uh, cyclotron have come in and done all of their, uh, all of their tests and um, maintenance. Then, then it's our turn. So uh, for three nights a week, we work from 11 p.m. Uh, at night till about 3 a.m. in the morning. Um, and we're, you know, we've really got a full schedule of experiments now for uh, several months ahead. So uh, we work with groups from all over the UK and really all over the world who uh, want to come and use our facility um, to, to do uh, research. Wow. Just wow. Honestly, Mike, it's so interesting. And it's stuff I'm thinking from a therapeutic radiographer's perspective. You know, some people will have a little bit of insight into the work you do. And I'm sure that the therapeutic radiographers that are working at the Christie, but for anyone else around the country who, who maybe hasn't even seen proton beam therapy in real life, um, it just blows the mind. And especially all the kind of nano radiobiology that you're seeing it's so interesting especially as someone who is quite geeky about radiobiology anyway um it's amazing to hear that so as it stands at the moment are you actually treating any patients with the simulations that you've been able to create or is that kind of the anticipated outcome so uh, no we're not treating any patients with um what we would call uh, rbe models so models of proton relative biological effectiveness really they are i would say not advanced enough yet to gain that clinical confidence to actually go out and treat a patient there has to be sufficient evidence to move from this very safe uh, value of 1.1 that's used clinically everywhere in the world at the moment and models of relative biological effectiveness have existed for many many years but they've always been based we call them phenomenological models They've all, always been based on models that just fit the data um, with no uh, biological basis to that, um, that fit. And so they only fit under the, a very limited number of conditions. And they've been around for a long time and they've not convinced any clinician yet that a patient should be treated with, with the uncertainties they would bring. I would say if we were to use them at the moment and the correct, the the prediction of a higher RBE was wrong. The risk would be far greater than using a cautious treatment and trying to plan treatments that would avoid very high values of RBE at the end of range, going into organs at risk near the tumour where that effect could be, um, could be bad. So the potential exists to really improve treatments if we could harness it. But 
really we do have to improve these models before they are ready. And I think that's one particular thing where Manchester has really tried to focus on models that underpin or try to unpick the, the biology that is, is the cause of these differences so that we can make this step-by-step -step approach in saying, do we understand this bit of biology here and does it cause a difference in relative biological effectiveness? And can we measure that? And if we can measure that, then we've got that right in the model. Then what's the next step? Can we measure that? Until uh, so we can eventually kind of gain that clinical confidence and reduce that biological uncertainty in proton therapy to the point where we could reasonably convince uh, clinicians that there is a, a sound biological basis for perhaps a clinical trial. Um, and whether the mathematical models are, are useful enough in getting there, I think they will be. But I think there is something in trying to teach a computer everything that is known about biology that really forces you to question, did you completely understand it in the first place? And from that, we've, we've found parts of the literature on, uh, on DNA repair that haven't um, have been in contradiction and through modeling, we've showed that only one of those uh, particular uh, theories or hypotheses can be the correct one. And so it has been useful just in that act of trying to encode the knowledge in simulation. How have you found sort of your initial findings and the acceptance? Have you published anything? Just thinking, obviously, trying to get clinicians slowly on board if, if it does work. So um, there are obviously a number of trials going on around the, the world and in the UK that are looking at protons versus photons um, and their and what the comparison of those are, and particularly long-term side effects and the follow-up. And so that's where our data will come from for validating these RBE models. At the moment, I think most of the available trials that have completed haven't had sufficient follow-up in the medical imaging or, um, or haven't had a sufficient quantity of patients through to really allow any of the uh, relative biological effectiveness models for protons to be very well validated, including Manchester's. But I'm quite excited about um, some of the existing trials in the UK, um, uh, particularly uh, Parable. Uh, the, the trial in uh, breast cancer has been in the media a lot recently, and Manchester's involved in that. Um, so, yeah, we'll, we'll be looking to uh, really follow up looking at the, the outcomes from from clinical trials in Manchester and the UK. Mike, I was intrigued when you were talking about cell lines. How do you generate them initially? How do you get the samples? Well, um, for any biologists who should be listening or, or will be listening, I, I should say that I did start life as an electronic engineer. And really what I understand about biology has been taught by programming a computer for biological simulations. But um, a number of cell lines that we use are either very, very standardized cell lines that have been grown in labs for years um, and have become almost like biological standards because their response is very well characterized. So we use those, they can be compared well against uh, either other groups work or uh, other assays or their, their response is well known. Um, and they tend to be immortalized cell lines. They can just be grown uh, and uh, passaged. That means uh, kind of regrown uh, from seed ag again in, um, in uh, a lab um, essentially um, more or less infinitely to, to huge quantity of cells. Other cells lines that we can get are um, patient derived. So these are uh, taken at biopsy um, during patient treatment and they can be uh, grown into, uh, or well, um, taken and grown in plastic, but they only survive for a, a small number of, um, of cell cycles or of, of life cycles of the cell. So, uh, they have to be treated a little bit differently. Um, and that, that's how we'd get um, cell lines for different cancer types. Some of those can also be immortalized, but I think the, the, the process of that takes them further from being um, 
a result that I suppose is, is less biologically relevant. Um, and we do always have this problem in, in translation in that we do a lot of study of cellular response, uh, I, I suppose a single cell or a population of cell level in plastic and we measure the survival of those and that's what underpins our uh, model of uh, radiobiology, things such as the linear quadratic model of cell survival. And then we measure treatment effect like tumor control or normal tissue toxicity in patients. And that's a, that's a patient level effect, which um, you know, it, it comes from things that happen in tissues such as inflammation or necrosis. And there's this gap in understanding of exactly how we're measuring things that, what, that happen to cells, but how do they affect what happens to tissue or that much larger uh, response? And then how does that go on to affect the overall response to the patient and how they may be feeling after, you know, two, five, ten years' time? And, and certainly the mathematical models for, uh, for relative biological effect of, pa of patients, or well, of cells, they are a very long way from predicting that overall biological response of the patient at the moment. And so we do have to find kind of measurements or, or assays that are a better, um, a better measure of that biological effect than single cells. Um, and so um, we work with, uh, with groups, uh, one particularly led by David Antoine Fernandez in Cambridge, who has managed to make a um, a tissue scaffold. So this is grown from uh, patient-derived cells, but it grows into a, a layer of cells that is much more tissue-like. And then we can study the response of those cells in a, a more natural um, tissue-like environment and see what the, uh, the side effects of that is. And so, so that's a, a particularly interesting theme of research. And I think that's something that will be more and more important in the future. Mike, can I just ask quickly, you mentioned obviously immortalizing cells. The original cells that are used then, they could be, I don't know, 50 years old if they've been immortalized because they've just been remade. Is that right? Does that mean that obviously newer cancers, if there's more genetic mutations, there might be different effects to them? Or am I getting the wrong end here? Oh, yeah, I think, um, I mean, you're, you're <laughs> touching on the edges of my biology knowledge here. But, you know, obviously there is the uh, the famous book about uh, healer cells. Um, so um, the, yeah, the immortal life of Henrietta Lacks, which, uh, which does describe that story of how uh, immortalization of cell lines was first... Uh, first discovered but so some of those cell lines have existed for a very very long time uh, but I think there's a uh, a consensus now that actually some of those cell lines have come quite a long way from really representing the, the real response of patient cell lines now I think that the problem with cancer cells um, and obviously a, a well-known hallmark of cancer is that they can have very very many mutations and they can each be incredibly different and so trying to study um, how each of those cancer cells responds I think is is particularly important um, but in many ways it, it's not the tumor response that um, that interests me most it's understanding the normal tissue toxicity so if we could understand how tolerance doses to organs at risk near the tumor site, um, how they would be affected more or, or, or how we could reduce toxicity to those, then I think we could significantly improve proton therapy. Uh, whereas I, I think the knowledge of the sort of the prescription dose to sterilize the tumor is quite well understood in, in most cases. Um, and on, uh, on that, there's uh, two particularly exciting themes in radiotherapy that have become really hot topics of research uh, here in Manchester um, and around the world. And uh, the first of those is uh, flash radiotherapy. So, in fact, I, I should say both of these were discovered in the 1960s. Uh, it does seem like kind of every good idea in radiotherapy has previously been discovered in the 1960s and then forgotten about. But 
a flash radiotherapy was uh, rediscovered in, uh, in Orsay in 2014. And, and flash isn't an acronym. It basically just means delivering radiation incredibly fast. So our normal dose rate in proton therapy is about two gray per liter per second. And flash radiotherapy uh, would want doses of about 100 gray per second. Um, now, we don't know exactly what value of, of that dose rate needs to be, uh, and that's one of the research questions. But what FLASH seems to do is spare normal tissue while maintaining the exact same amount of cancer of tumor kill. And, and there's, like most things, there's a, a, a mix of results from around the world, and there's it, it, so it's not proved easy, but there are results out there that show that normal tissue sparing of up to 40% might be possible. And it, it's probably going to be quite nuanced and under uh, only certain conditions. But we're doing a lot of research in the Manchester, in, at, in the Christie Proton Therapy Center, where we can get flash dose rate proton beams onto our samples to try and understand what those particular conditions where flash works are and then how they could be taken into treatment. And so the, the really interesting thing about flash is that we don't understand why it works. It completely changed understanding of radiobiology. We don't understand the mechanism of why putting in dose so fast would change that radiobiological response. And it's had the whole world scratching their heads um, about you know what what's going on? Is it on a cellular level or is it on a tissue level? Uh, there's been lots of hypotheses. Um, some of them have now been disproved, and that's just opened up others. And so it's such an exciting field of research that to suddenly say, hey, you know, actually, you know, what's happening? We don't we don't know why flash is sparing this normal tissue, and can we try and understand that? And out of that, out out of flash, really. There's become an, another topic of interest that I'm particularly interested in, which is called spatially fractionated radiotherapy. Um, of most, most radiotherapy at the moment is temporarily fractionated. So we know this as, say, a, a prescription dose for a tumor being, let's say, 60 gray, but that being given in 30 treatments of 2 gray over six weeks. Um, so that's separated in time, temporal fractionation. Spatial fractionation is separating the dose up on um, uh, on a, a physical scale. So to give an example, it was discovered in the 1960s. And in, in those uh, earlier days of radiotherapy, they used to put a thick grid on the skin of the patient. And they would fire a higher dose of radiation through this grid with the grid completely blocking the radiation dose um, and there being gaps in the grid where the radiation would go through but at a at a higher dose and this was found to end up having the same dose to the tumor but it would scare it would spare the skin by having these regions of skin that received no dose and almost like uh, using a wound healing effect, these regions that had less dose were able to repair the regions that had a higher dose. So having this um, non-homogeneous dose at the surface um, allowed repair to happen um, better. <laughs> but technology moved on, treatments became more conformal, you know, development of IMRT and VM, uh, VMAT, spatial fractionation, and this grid therapy, it just became a thing of the past and it, it was forgotten. But protons, uh, protons can be highly focused. And so now we have a proton mini beam therapy, which can create those same types of patterns, but by focusing the beam. Now this isn't ready for clinical treatment yet because uh, the, the clinical treatment gantries, as we know them for proton therapy, they have a, a beam spot size that's scanned over the tumor. And that spot is about, um, it's about the size of a marble, I suppose. And if we could get it down to about the size of a pea, then we could probably do mini beam. 
but at the moment it's not quite small enough. So it, it's only in uh, beamlines that are dedicated purely for research can we play play around with the configuration of magnets to make that focus and put that beam onto research samples, whether they be um, s individual cells or tissue, and start to look at this, how this um, spatial fractionation or this pattern of radiation dose between regions of very high dose and regions of no, no dose in almost like stripes compared to a single area of, uh, of dose being all the same how that effect um, can uh, essentially cause a, a normal tissue sparing effect, but even deep into tissue. And again, it's very exciting because we don't know all of the reasons for why this radiobiology occurs. We know that it must be some sort of non-targeted effect, i.e. those cells that don't get irradiated, but are within that radiation field region, enhancing the repair uh, of normal tissue in the regions of the cells that receive that much higher dose. Mike, I think we could possibly talk to you all night and I am sure that anyone listening would be like, no, give him more time. But we are coming to the end of the podcast episode. Um, I just want to um, do a shout out that we did, we did actually do a podcast episode, episode 45, uh, on flash um so if anyone is continuing to be interested in flash radiotherapy then definitely go and check that out as well um mike top tips for anyone who's maybe listening who's more interested who wants to get involved more in research who is totally in awe of everything that you're doing what top tips would you give them um, so uh, I'm not too sure about top tips, but I, I think for students, what I'd say is it's a really interesting time to be involved in radiotherapy research. There's so many open questions that have huge potential to change uh, patient treatment for the better. And so um, I think, I suppose if, if it was to be a top tip, it would be that a lot of these research challenges, they require multidisciplinary knowledge or interdisciplinary knowledge far beyond uh you know radiation physics or medical physics or biology i think researchers of any discipline there's room to be involved so i think it's the time to sort of find your friends and see see how you can uh see how they could help really um and just you know try to stay current on the very uh, rapid changes that are happening in radiotherapy research at the moment amazing honestly thank you so very much for joining us Michael it's been so interesting I've learned loads and I'm sure anyone listening is intrigued to learn even more um, of which obviously we will post all of the things that you've mentioned so thank you all for listening to Rad Chat your hosts today have been myself Jay McNamara and Norman Jolka Anderson if you're utilising this podcast for CPD purposes consider the reflective questions posted along with links to resources and literature that we've discussed to receive your accredited CPD certificate please complete the Google form linked with the podcast our next guest to feature will be Cheryl Cruz, who will be discussing her experience of cancer and why breast density matters. Thank you and take care.